Doesn't matter what I say, hey, hey. so long as I use inflection. That makes me feel I'll convey some inner truth or vast reflection. But I said nothing so far. I can keep it up for as long as it takes. It doesn't matter who you are. If I'm doing my job, it's your resolve that breaks. Cause the hook brings you back. I ain't telling you no lie. The hook brings you back. I ain't telling you no and the hook brings you back I ain't telling you no lies. Pick it up, pick it up, pick it in, whether you win ten ten or in Berlin. Make a desperate move or else you'll win. Then let's you see what you do to me. This MTV is not for free. That's so PC, it's killing me. So desperately I sing to thee of love, sure, but also hate and pain and pain and fear of self. And I just can't keep seeing things on the shelf. I've tried. Oh, no, I think I've lied. Could do financial suicide, but I've got too much pride inside to hide or shine or do what I abide or let it ride until I die. And only then shall I abide. And when you're hip to little hip to two the minute tombs, you're hip to minute ditties. I want to bust all your balloons. I want to burn all of your sanities to the ground. I found I won't mess around until I say, but hey, that's really all I say here. What I pray, I pray to pray to me. That's really all this was. I'm feeling stuck and I need a buck. I don't belong on luck because the hook brings me back. I ain't telling you no lies. It's really amazing that they wrote that song on their first album. I mean, I'm assuming they were a band for a while, but that was their breakout album, the one that had Runaround on it. And like their second song off that album is their world-weary like uh Bob Seeger song about how uh about how like fame is a, an illusion and art under commerce is impossible. Like the, how you get that cynical that fast, dude? Shouldn't you be excited? I mean, you're a fat guy in a fucking vest made of harmonicas. You should be lucky you're not like busking in front of a train station. You're playing like the fucking horde tour. A bunch of girls, uh white girls with dreads wearing like uh overalls are flashing you and you're already writing a song about how oh you're a bunch of fucking stupid pigs and i'm i'm a i'm your puppet master amazing that was the 90s though everything was just pre uh cynical everybody was prefabricated as a massive cynic they they didn't get to be disillusioned 
Like they, they came out of uh, the womb disillusioned with uh, capitalism, basically, but content within it because they assumed that they were going to maintain a certain level of comfort. They assumed, even though the spirit had left the world, that the material comforts of the world would persist. And so the entire crisis of the 90s, the, the psychic crisis of the 90s, is people coming to terms with the idea that, oh, this is going to be as good as it gets, which means uh, I'm going to have to make do with this. I'm going to have to stop imagining a transcendence of the alienation and misery of this life that I cannot comp- comprehend and cannot directly confront because I lack political agency, because I am unfree, but I am still in this thing. How do I keep getting pleasure out of this system? And that's why they become so disillusioned so goddamn fast and why irony becomes the de facto perspective and aggression in culture emerges. You get your Woodstock 99s, your fight clubs. It is people having to be uh, told that there's no more frontiers, that they have, there's no more that they can imagine in their life. There's, they cannot struggle to control their lives. They're surrendering their con- the control over their lives. That is fundamentally what is being asked of them. And it's been asked of them the whole time. It's just it hasn't gotten to them yet by the 80s that when they're all coming into uh, coming of age. They have been cut off. The bridges have been burned. Cortez's ships are aflame. There's no going back to, uh, to upward mobility. There's only downward mobility from here on. Uh, but there is also, when in the, in the 90s you learn, no ability to uh, be authentic. And that's why the entire decade is suffused with cynicism and hostility and fear of uh, selling out because we're, we're literally selling our souls for comfort. And we're wrestling with that. And then 9-11 happens, redefines the entire uh, array of forces. And then finally, the fucking collapse of 08 happens and everybody gets dropped into a common decline that is not what any of them signed up for. And all of uh, the different generations are reacting to this crisis with different degrees of schizophrenic uh, uh, refusal to acknowledge reality, depending on how addicted they basically had been, how much they assumed uh, that material comfort would define their lives. So the boomers are completely insane. But the Xers are not much less. And the Zoomers... Uh, are the ones who are experiencing total uh, total alienation from all institutions, from, uh, from the conception of themselves as like public beings. Like they come into life with no belief in any institutions providing them with any material or spiritual comfort. And we're all responding to that moment differently. And what it means for America is that we are continued to be held hostage by the demented social rituals of these completely detached from reality boomers. Because they are the ones who are still ritually adhered enough to democracy to vote every goddamn two years and contribute money and interest to politics that fuel its, its structural influence on American life. Like they are participating in the civic rituals that give uh, actual 
meaning to a political legitimacy. They're legitimizing the system ritually more than anybody else because they have lived the lives that though they have been spiritually departed over time have been for until now secured in a baseline degree of physical ease and comfort of life. And they are encountering the end of that and they don't know how to process it. So their politics are becoming more and more unstable and hysterical. And we are all stuck in the afterbirth of that. And we are all having to respond to that political context because there is no working class counter hegemonic political strain. It's been destroyed. The Democratic Party in the 70s no longer was a working class influenced party. The, United, the working class became the junior members of this uh, alliance and lost their power. Now it's just two bourgeois parties, two different groups of people who, no matter what their jobs were or are, conceive themselves as smallholders, as burgers. They can be members of the working class. What matters is that they are burgers. They have a damn home. They have a little bit of property that is equity, that is capital, that is an investment that makes them a capitalist. And they vote for political parties in numbers sufficient relative to the rest of the population to guarantee that their their politics wins, which means there can be no uh, address, no po- politics cannot effectively address material issues now because it's dominated by two parties that are capitalists in their nature and therefore driving towards total uh, total profit extraction and have to detach us democratically from that decision. And they're doing it by presiding over a culture war between people who are mostly materially being deeply harmed by the system and have a collective interest in resisting it, but who are experiencing culture through the politics and reality through this cultural uh, veil that turns everything into just the reflection of the dying brains of these fucking boomers. Like we are stuck in their contrail now. Post Bernie, there is no uh, third pole to organize around. If we are part of this thing, we are organizing the structure, regardless of what we think we're doing. And that brings me to what I wanted to talk today about, which is the goddamn vaccine mandate. I feel like this is a perfect example of how politics is being defined by immiseration throughout all classes of Americans that is exclusively expressed in people's lives through this pantomime politics because of the death of working class counter hegemony, hegemony, whatever. So there are plenty of leftists who are very sympathetic to resistance to vaccine mandates, who see it as a, a bad sign, as a, as a, as a tightening of the noose of the techno-fascist state around our necks. And so they resist vaccine mandates. And I think that that is a healthy feeling to have for anyone because the baseline we need to start from is that everybody should feel violent alienation towards every institution in American society. 
everyone should. That is not the thing that's wrong with conservatives or MAGA people or liberals. So there is a coherent left critique of uh, our medical establishment and state that says a vaccine in this context being compelled on people is an imposition. So I feel like that is, as a, as a uh, general statement, I think that's a good starting point. But the thing is, the only reason uh, is, the thing is, is that if you look a little deeper at this, if you take, apply the next reasonable filter to that first response, okay, yes, the state, we're, we're, we're a part of a new techno-medical bio-state. There's all these institutions that they want to, institute, to create. This vaccine's a perfect uh, chance for them to create this new regime of biopower on us. Okay, but here's the thing. Is, there, is coronavirus real? Does it kill people and, and, uh, and cause significant damage to uh, people who survive it? Does it create crises in our medical uh, institutions? Does it cause insignificant pain and suffering? Like, is it a social ill? If that's if it is, well, then any regime, no matter what its relationship to capitalism was, in, including a communist one, would institute a vaccine mandate. Would try to get a vaccine through public investment and then distribute that vaccine universally. That would be the goal of any state. Now, because our state is this bourgeois kleptocracy, the version of vaccine response that we got is this monstrous boondoggle and giveaway uh, to IP pirates uh, in the pharmaceutical sector. Yes, that's what we did. That's what capitalism does. But towards the goal, towards the deeper a goal that any state would pursue because this thing is undermining institutions that allow for capitalism to continue. They have an interest in reducing this. So they have an interest in the vaccine working. The doctors working on it would have a, 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 a interest in the vaccine working. Now, of course, they also have an interest in securing super profits as, 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 as and kill the third world, but they're also making a vaccine. Okay. They got the vaccine. Now we've had the vaccine for a while now, right? Six months. We have huge vaccination rates in some places in the world and, and, and in the country. What is the verdict on the vaccine? Does it work? And I would say in any meaningful metric, it works. It doesn't mean nobody gets COVID ever again, but that we don't need to get there. That's an impossible and insane dream. And, and liberals who want that are just neurotic freaks, yes, who are just trying to scrub themselves clean of something that is not really the virus. It's their own social uh, anxieties. If we say the vaccine reduces transmission, reduces, most importantly, reduces severity of illness to the point where if everybody gets COVID in a context where we're getting this vaccine or versions of it in the future, 
then, hey, this thing's not going to kill that many people. It's not going to make that many people sick. This is a huge improvement. This is a massive improvement. This is the kind of thing that a state, no matter what its uh, economic relationships uh, that define it, is going to try to pursue for the public good, including the creation, the, the maintenance of a public to be fleeced. Uh, they want a shopping for Christ's sake. They want the economy to work at this point. Yeah, early COVID was a great bonanza for capital, but it still has to circulate at the retail fucking level. We have to circulate the capital. But again, this is if you get universal fucking vaccination. Now, given the facts we have here, you would think that most of the work of getting everybody vaccinated would be done by faith in public institutions, but that's gone. Like, this is nobody's fault, and this is the one thing that's true about people who want to tisk tisk people who make fun of the horse pasters is, at the end of the day, nobody's really choosing how to respond to this stuff. We're responding to this stuff through preconceived ideas that we're not really analyzing, but that make these things feel incredibly reasonable. If you start from a complete rejection of authority of institutions like the government, the media and science scientists, which once again are merited. These are capitalist fueled institutions that are doing political ends. But unless you have a certain partisan mania, which is, I think a byproduct of, middle-class neuroses, you are not so violently alienated from these institutions that you can't see the preponderance of the evidence that the vaccine works and then want to get it. If you're not wanting to get it, it's because you are looking at this thing through an identity prism that is so overwhelming that you are applying a different standard of evidence to this one thing than you would to anything else. But of course, this doesn't do anything for the fact that people don't want, people have deeply embedded alienations from the system, not just conservatives, like I said, a lot of leftists and even people who aren't political, like people who don't really think in terms of like right or left, which is most Americans have a deep seated distrust of these institutions that is warranted. And that is where the conveyor belt of, of, of consent breaks down because you don't have, you can't appeal to these previously objective uh, considerations like uh, the mainstream media. The mainstream media used to do most of the work of getting people to go along with capitalism. And now it no longer does because the treat bar is over and people are dealing with that and they're, losing their ability to believe in institutions that keep, that keep telling them that what is happening is good and that it's a progressive force and that you are consenting to it. So these institutions are completely de decaying and, and everyone is looking at everything through their filter. And so you have this, what could be in a different political context, a productive alienation from institutions becomes just another reinforcer for the dynamic between the parties and the identity politics war between Republicans and Democrats. 
because we've got everybody reacting to this thing, not as workers, not through the lens of people with a relationship to capitalism that might make them see clearly where their interests lie, where the, where, what the class interest is, see clearly people's genuine desire not to get COVID and get sick. People who risk COVID don't want to get it. They want to see it taken care of. That's a real signal. That's not just nothing. People have a desire to not get sick. Now, yes, it might be magnified by the media, but it's a real desire related to a real condition. If it didn't, Florida would not be in the condition it is. And so what this means, of course, is that the pro-vaccine side is dog shit. There's no persuasion there. There's only reinforcement. Every one of your alienations is reinforced by what the cultural face that comes with the demand to get vaccinated because it is filtered through the Democratic Party's neuroses, their neurotic fixation on uh, uh, using their control of these institutions that they imagine they have to coerce behavior, which makes it more alienating to somebody who's outside of that cone of uh, belief, that like epistemic tunnel. It becomes a political act, which it shouldn't be. If it's a political act, you've already lost because you're asking people, by getting the vaccine, you're asking them to submit in a battle that they believe they've been fighting with forces above them their entire lives that they give different names to. Some do think it's capital, but others think it's uh, you know uh, some cultural minority, as it were. You know, They have some theory or another for who it is that they're fighting, but they think they're fighting somebody, big government, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, the Elboa dot. They think they're fi- they're fighting the demiurge, but they don't know what it is. It presents a thousand faces. The thing that's supposed to clarify this conflict is the existence of robust working class institutions that can assist assert power. We don't get that. We got the vaccine in the context of a liberal led non response to this emergency that says we don't actually care if you live or die, but we're going to all pretend we do. And then we're going to all do a bunch of things that pretend to make things better. So of course, when a vaccine comes around, it looks like just another pretend thing that they're doing just to own you, just to make you supplicate because you're in the realm of ideas here. You're in the identity sphere. You're out of material politics. What the, the threat of the vaccine is not the threat of the the of the uh of capital de- destroying labor or or um you know the final wo- victory of the capitalist class it's the victory of this faction this this face of domination the libs in some in some cultural garb the libs and they want you to think that. They want to dominate. They want this thing to be a ritual of domination because for them it's a game. They all live indoors. They're not going to die. They have good health insurance. They get all their shit delivered. It's a game to them. That's the thing. It is a game to the people who are determining these political stakes. So that means when millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people die of this thing, it stays a game to them. And it's a game to them now in this post-vaccine world. It doesn't matter to them. The people it matters to, though, can't express what they really want because that is a competent state to administer the vaccine to them 
because there is no competent state that they can uh, picture in the firmament of politics. They only get this monstrous face of domination. But that means that if you are a self-conscious leftist who imagines that you are operating not as a member of a subculture but as part of a political project, then you have to have the strength of will not to get caught up in these currents and stake out a flag of pure idiotic contrarianism. Because what you're actually arguing for when you say that the vaccine is uh, tyranny or, or domination is to uh, essentially reify the neurotic self-conception of middle-class white homeowners. Now, of course, there are tons of people who have their own more justified rejection of the state that has to be overcome and that isn't and that turns into anti-vax sentiment. But they don't get to express it independent of this form because that's where the action is. The, the, the middle-class neurotic Republicans have state governments. They have guys running for president in two years. They have guys looking to please Trump if they think he's going to run. They have a whole apparatus here to press a political agenda in the courts and in legislatures. They're able to create little fiefdoms like Texas and Florida, that they have their own realities that people can, can live within. And that, that is the context of the vaccine debate. You get to pick one side or the other, unless you just ask yourself, does the vaccine work? Yes. Should I get it? Yes. That should be it. And then this fight is going to happen. And who knows how intense this is going to be. It really would be fitting if we got a civil war out of this bullshit. Because it would be just the middle class of America having a nervous breakdown. Like we even, you can forget material conditions. Like they'll do it just to let out all the psychic energy that they've, that they've absorbed. That they can no longer press, uh, uh, express. And it will be a tantrum made up of people who have so invested their political identity with ritual significance that they are existentially like defeated by the vaccine in a way they aren't by every other thing they do every goddamn day in accordance with capitalism. None of the other things we do to get along, none of the other things we do to, uh, none of the other uh, grudging compromises we make with capital just to live our lives, none of those are the red line. None of those are the place where you will actually pick up a fucking gun. This is it. That's because you are in the tailwind of this meteorite of narcissism tumbling out, uh, exploding out of the dying American middle class. You ate, you will eat the bugs. You live in the pods. You already live in the pod. You already eat the bugs. And when the bugs come, it's not going to be a Nutra bar. It's going to be a fucking McDonald's double cheeseburger. It's going to look and taste basically exactly or close enough for government work to a fucking Big Mac. Because it's already, what do you think the fucking Big Mac is? This, the product of this industrial monstrosity, this, this, this ritual butchery. This, 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 this fucking unholy daily ritual to Moloch that goes into making industrial beef in this country, the amount of misery that is extracted out of sentient beings 
to create this fucking sludge that's 90% fucking uh, pesticide and fucking uh, genetically modified corn slurry. This shoddy-ass chair is threatening to fucking break on me, and I do not want that to happen again. So any revolt over a ritual related to our material conditions is not going to address our actual material conditions and needs. By definition, it won't. It can't. So it's going to be a big temper tantrum. And the question is, where are you going to be on it? And the beauty is, like with most of this stuff, you don't have to involve yourself. Not your really, not, doesn't have to be your problem. You can try to make things work in your own life. Imagine that. Instead of deciding to gin up a fantasy excuse for why your bourgeois individualist distaste at having to live under a regime of capitalism, something that is totally individualized. Is being violated by the state. Oh, boo fucking who? How many fucking vaccines did you already get just to go to school? Give me a fucking break. Not even vaccines, not even on the specific issue of vaccines can you make the claim. Because unless you want to argue that this vaccine is somehow different than the others, and at this point I don't think you can, then you have to argue some esoteric thing where it doesn't work. Every fucking argument for why vaccine hesitancy is justified is premised on the idea that the vaccine doesn't work. And I can understand why, as a matter of like trying to meet people where they are, you might not want to antagonize people who have a bourgeois distaste for the state doing this, because it's a lot of people, and some of them are workers. A number of them are workers. A lot of them are workers. But indulging it along this axis, I don't think is better. I think it's fucking, uh, it's, it's a bigger headache, because all the worst features of the bio state that are being created right now are happening under the guise of dealing with a continued outbreak that is largely the responsibility of motherfuckers who won't just get the goddamn vaccine. I am not going to fall again. It's not going to happen. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm not going to fall again. That's not happening. I need one of those gamer chairs, don't I? I need a gamer chair. 
And the other part of this is, is that to indulge the, the vaccine resistance thing on its own terms is to use logic that defeats the idea of cooperative government. Like you really are talking about people who say, I have no obligation that extends beyond my mere aesthetic preferences. That's, that's what, uh, that is what is being defended here. Not, not like rights, not, not like essential uh, questions of autonomy, because this is a public health thing and you have a public health solution to it that requires people to cooperate. Once again, any state, no matter its composition, would require this level of bare commitment to a social project. If you reject to that level of imposition, you, I don't think, could ever be really directed idealistically into a, a socialist position because you are genuinely allergic to the idea of sacrificing anything that you imagine to be uh, inviolate to yourself, which is your, once again, in America, consumer identity to be inviolate. And if you cannot, if you say that your consumer identity is inviolate, then how the fuck can you pursue socialism? I'm not saying that these people, once again, it has nothing to do with their essence. They believe this because this is what they are around. These are the frames of reference that they are absorbing. They don't know what they don't know, and there's no reason to get mad at them for it. They could think differently if the incentives went in a different direction. They would be like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. I, I associate other people with my happiness in a way that I haven't been able to in my life. Like I said, we create a society where we associate all of our miseries with other people and we hoard all pleasure to ourselves. So the idea of seeding any pleasure is to have it stolen because we're not, we can't imagine we're getting anything from it because our social fabric has been destroyed and there is no sense that the state can provide us with any sucker. It can only vex us. And I don't think it does anybody any good to go around reinforcing these just false ideas that people pick up that have to be challenged. They certainly shouldn't be fucking coddled. Because, like I said, the question of do you get the vaccine or not is only political to the extent that it is ornamental. Because, as I said, the effectiveness of the vaccine is one of those things that should be taken for granted as part of the deliberative process. The, the denying that is just assuming first your political priors. But we can't assume your political priors. That's not how it works. Everybody gets together and shows their hands. And this is the... This is the consensus reality that we're going with. Your resistance to it is the resistance to a consensus reality that includes uh, responsibilities outside of, of, the, of the self at all.
And I think it's really interesting that the way that the, uh, the way that the Biden administration has tried to, to prevent the real confrontation that they are really afraid they might lose because, you know, what if, what if Greg Abbott and, uh, and DeSantis do nullification on, uh, the vaccine mandate? I mean, is that, is that a live question at this point? Of course, you know, it's, it's hysterical, but, you know, we're farther down the slope than we were a year ago. <laughs> but I would say that you don't get a civil war then because I think that the Democrats back down. But the way they think they're going to get around like a real confrontation is giving people the option of getting a weekly test. And you are using the state's ability to nudge people to basically say, all right, fine, we will let you believe that you are, uh, that you're principled. We will let you keep your uh, sacred autonomy, but we're going to make it more annoying to do that every, every week. We're going to make you do a thing. You're going to make you do a little mini ritual of abeyance to us that is not maybe as traumatic as the vaccine is, but it's just like a little mini version of that. We're going to make you do that every week until you get annoyed by it and give in. And then it will be your responsibility. And I would say anything that depends on a, le- a, a, a not, not just even lab leak theory, because I'm totally open to lab leak theory. I don't really think it matters that much uh, unless you think it was an intentional lab leak and, and by like one, some state actor or another. And that the, the, and that the vaccine, the vaccines are like plan B of some uh, program. Uh, you can believe that. I'm not going to argue it with you, but you have to look at the fact that that is a vastly minority position. Most people don't look at the world and think that. How are you going to convince them of that? Because that's what politics is, right? How are you going to convince them of that? You're not. All you're going to end up doing is providing fodder for the broader uh, petty bourgeois temper tantrum. Because you're not going to get a lot of people to believe this stuff because it requires you have grooved in your mind connections between things that you have read and and, 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 uh, experienced in America. You have a narrative. That's what a fucking conspiracy theory is, is it is essentially just filling in the, the gaps. Like you might know the broader sweep, but you need to know the specifics. And the thing is, you can't really know the specifics. They are specifically held from you. That's the whole point is that you don't get to know that stuff. So you have to fill in the blanks with your mind. And a lot of the time, I think you create something that is a very close approximation, like a poetic echo of what's really in there. But that's all it can ever be. It can't be solid, which means you can't use it to uh, push a political agenda outside of the small group of people who are already on board with you. doesn't have the power to create resistance, 
coordinated resistance to capitalism, that appeal to material interests does. Because that is a more, that is a simpler language that is more directly accessible to more people that doesn't require a, a pre-existing cultural framework to grasp and to connect to. So all this means for me is that, once again, this is a thing that right now is the pivot point to, to politics in a lot of ways. It seems like this is where the action is in ter- determining people's uh, allegiances. You know, this is quickening to a, a point of commitment. And I, I think, uh, like most of these things, it is, it is an uh, echo it is a, it is a sad constrained cramped uh, echo of of the of the of the general pain uh of people living at a time of universal decline with no hope of it being relieved and no faith in their own ability to change their uh their condition um, and in that you're going to have a overwhelming rejection of existing uh structures of, of hegemonic ideas and, 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 uh, and institutions because where else are you supposed to turn to blame? And the thing is they are to blame, but it, it's only a, a working class lens that exposes the real uh, shape of the thing, the real, the real skeleton. Everything else is, is just a collection of individual, uh, mental projections, sort of neurotic projections that we all then kind of compare and move through. The one of them that isn't, the one of them is real is, is, the, uh, is the lens of class, the, the lens of relationship to production. But that lens then is, has, has to build on top. Then that lens is then applied to everything. But it doesn't determine yes, no on every debate. It determines action. And part of action is deciding what matters and what doesn't matter. What opinions to care about and which ones to sort of de- uh, uh, which ones to put on the back burner. What things to make red lines and what things to be uh, flexible on. That is the task. It's not winding through and knowing you got everyone right and, and uh, did the right thing. Uh, it's moving in a direction. And what makes you know you're doing the right thing isn't your own mind, which is never going to be satisfied, but the general uh, consensus of those around you that you're working with. And all of this new polit- this vax politics is just, it's grievance. It's, it's, it's petty bourgeois grievance because that's all that can be reinforced. Even though plenty of the people who feel that way and, and imagine themselves part of this group when, when it, they're projecting it uh, are genuinely being fucked over. 
like big time, aren't just having a tantrum in their pool. They're getting fucked over big time. But when they try to ex- give a language to their fucked overness, they're only given two choices over and over again. It's either white male hegemony, patriarchy, the stuff that is yucky in neurotic liberal urban circles, or uh, it's it's them. It's everybody who isn't like you conspiring. And then you just end up getting recruited into one or other of those larger groups. The whole Bernie, Bernie was trying to create a third pole of culture. And that really, I think is what the, like the Bert dirt, whatever the dirt bag left, uh, argument uh was which i always thought was very kind of embarrassing and and cringy but i think what it really was in retrospect is an part of the formation of a little counter eddy around a new political current and then the 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 resistance to it is the is sort of the the antibodies kicking in of the greater liberal project of those more comfortable those more committed to maintaining the system uh, who don't actually want another choice. They don't actually want a third force. That that was an attempt to to, to undermine it. Uh, but now, like, everybody's banging their heads against the wall and, and accusing each other of everything because we're smashed back together, because we're now just, once again, in the backdraft of the liberal, uh, the social liberal uh, agenda. Because that's where the, that's who's in the driver's seat, and there's this crisis about uh, what to do because there's this element of agency that's now been that's gone that we I think took for granted for a little while. I know I did. I thought we were able to to dictate terms a little bit, but uh, last last winter really put the put the nail in that coffin and. What we're seeing is people trying to come to terms with that reality. And most of them are doing it by finding someone to blame. Finding some people who are, uh, on the, who are of bad faith, who are undermining the thing. And con- conducting an inquisition. Uh, and that's inevitable because there's nothing else to do. Uh, except sit around and wait for something to change. But I posit that there is something else to do. Even if there's nothing you can actually do differently in your life, you look at it a million ways, you can, for yourself, break the cycle of, uh, of emotional investment. Because it does sap your will to live and your ability to do anything. Because it is time out of your body, you know, fundamentally. You really cannot be fully embodied on the computer. I mean, that's the dream, right? That's the singularity. But I think that that is a chimera. I think, or I, I think it's a, it's a, 
It is a fantasy. It's the it's the bunny that they have you the the greyhounds run behind. We have to resynthesize and and re re adjust away from uh from pulling towards the singularity because when it comes it'll come in the form of uh it'll come in the form that just the accelerated form of what we have now which is armed camps increasingly armed uh and, and privatized spaces uh where people at various degrees of precarity uh express their mounting terror by accusing each other of a political uh, wrong think to distract themselves from their implication of uh, their implication in a system that they still materially support. And then on the other, on the other side of those uh, well-guarded fences are going to be those who, to whom there is no state to uh to address oneself to people chewed up and spit out by capitalism and they will essentially be incapable of uh organizing against the system because they will be outside of it they'll be part of uh part of a biome that is essentially just cut off from the, the greater pro the small, I shouldn't say greater. I should say smaller project of creating archipelagos of wealth. So I'm actually, I finally got the book. I should say it so I commit to it. I finally have structure. I've got, I know what I want to, I've been really struggling with structure and I finally got what I think I want. It's like a telescoping, it's a telescoping structs, uh, nesting series of, of essays that kind of start from like a, a close examination of the current political moment and then pull way out, like crank style, like 19th century weirdo shit. Because I am not a doctor, and I dropped out of uh, grad school, so I don't have to worry about defending it in front of a tenure committee. Take it or leave it. Yes, I am a crank. We're all cranks. We're all cranks here.
in the 19th century, it was very common for people who were trying to make sense of the the sudden vertiginous eruption of industrial capitalism to uh, just sit down and try to trace all of human history back to the dawn of civilization and like map out exactly how we got here. Like, okay, where did we fuck up? That was basically the under, underlying assumption for a lot of it was where did we fuck up? For some of them, it was look how great we're doing. That's the Whig school. But for a lot of these people, it was just this uh, deeply uh, pessimistic view that's uh, cycles of decay running through everything, which is, of course, accurate. That is the true of all cyclical. Uh, that's all, all, all cycles of uh, class domination are cyclical and, and tend towards decay, rise and fall and collapse. Marx, among these guys, was obviously the genius of the era, like the, the biggest brain uh, on the continent while capitalism was emerging. And he was able to see it most clearly. And he, of course, was able to imagine an end to this cycle of decay that sets his work against all of the, like, fucking, um, all of the phrenology uh, and, uh, like, race theory that made up the pseudoscientific uh, crank diagnosis of the 19th century. Marx thought, no, you idiot, that, that shit is all ornamental. This is a p- process of domination of classes. This is some people working for other people and societies that have to accommodate both of them, the one being exploited and the one enjoying their exploits. That is a contradiction that fuels all social uh, activity. But it creates a class now that can be self-aware and that can stop this, the drift because it stops the internal conflict between alienated uh, humans that is not necessary. We don't have to keep projecting uh, our worst uh, knowledge of ourselves onto a phantom other and then try to destroy them. We don't have to do that because we're not just a, we're not living in institutions created by a bunch of rich, guilty fucks trying to work out their anxiety which is all you have in a social order absent uh, labor, uh, working class control. Democratic, that's what that means, democratic control. Hey, what do people need? Let's use the technology we have to get it to them. And having a Catholic understanding of what we and what the people are. This is not an impossible thing. We see evidence of it in our lives every day. It is about intensifying those feelings with technology to make a truly global post-class social order that creates that uses the state to enforce itself until at a certain point it is no longer necessary. So I'm basically trying to re- bring back the, the crank tradition of 19th century, what the fuck happened, oh my God, where did we go wrong, through a lens of Marxism uh, that was proved correct but that was proved correct in predicting a common ruin of contending classes. And so I get to apply my crank eye to world history without the encumbrance of all the uh, Victorian bullshit that was stuck in the heads of those 19th century guys. That's all that's been worked out of me. Now, of course I have my own nested set of, false impressions that are going to mutate and undermine my ability to translate my ideas to a larger group. 
but they're of this era. They're of the post Marx era. They're of the post class era. They're not before while it was being created. So it is a it's a new a new synthesis on the uh, on the crank approach to uh, politics and history that is free of the academic requirement for narrow um, granular persuasiveness. I guess I would put it, i.e., not having to be bullshit. But if you think about it, the only reason we insist on that degree of specificity is because there's somebody there to uh, give you a grade and tell you whether or not you keep your job uh, if you're doing it. It's like make work. It's a proof of that you're doing something. It's proof that you're sitting around our academy actually thinking about something instead of just sitting around twiddling your thumbs. So, of course, this is not going to be Marx. I am not Marx. I am a dumbass. I'm really dumb. One of the reasons Marx fought online so much, basically, he did the equivalent of fighting online, is that he knew he was right and he was correct. Like, Of course, everybody thinks they're right, but a few of the people who think they're right are correct. And on these questions, Marx did not just think he was right. He was correct. And he had no bourgeois anxiety about letting people know he was right. And so that's why he was just this battering ram of contempt for other people. Part of the problem we have now is that everybody who's trying to do their own little versions of uh, explaining the world as they understand it out into the, uh, putting their barbaric yawp out into the uh, environment, out into the atmosphere. All of them have Marx's uh, conviction that they're right with none of his accuracy. Because now they psychologically need to be right. Marx is operating from first principle correctness that he then builds his person, the rest of his like identity around. And of course he has bourgeois uh, uh, fixations. He, he was an aspiring bourgeois gentleman. Like that was his lifestyle. It was what he tried to be. He knocked up the maid for God's sake. How much more bourgeois can you get than that? Engels was more of a bohemian. Like he shacked up with two Irish sisters. Uh, but he was, um, he was trying to live as a bourgeois. But all of that was premised on his, his certainty of his own correctness. And then he worked from that. For the modern leftists, leftism is just another ideal, uh, another personality trait that they have adapted. And that's true of me. That's true of most people on the left. It is an affectation because you don't really get to do anything with it except consume and, and make media. And so these people have Marx's absolute conviction that they're correct on top of actual political opinions and ideas that are barely held, that are motivated by the need to have an opinion. Like that's what they're actually, they're, they're saying, no, shut up. I'm right about this. It's shut up. I have an opinion and want to be acknowledged.
So yeah, that's uh, that's sadly where we are, really. Uh, people expressing themselves through a subculture that has associations, real associations with a historic tradition of leftism that is not currently uh, a going cultural concern, that is not attached to real institutions of working class power. The kind that Marx assumed would continue, would exist and would continue to exist. And now they are all shells. No. We still, though, can change that at any moment. That is historical contingency. We can break out of these structures. But we cannot break out of them through interaction with politics as spectacle. And it is up to us to determine what in our lives is spectacle and what is action. Not that we get rid of spectacle because spectacle is also a necessary component of our socialization because we're too alone to do anything else. It just means separating our need to act politically from our need to create a political identity. To not define our political identity through consumption and ritualized uh, voting and stuff. And debating. And you can really see that that move towards debate uh, and, and interpersonal beef erupt after Bernie loses. It is this displaced energy that has to go somewhere. Like we thought we were fighting for these amount of stakes. Like real change to uh, like what words are what 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 words mean what how people can act like changing the 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 mover but the, the giving humanity more breathing room basically against this the constrictions of capitalism. But then that proved illusory, and we can either readjust our relationship to the political media we consume, or we can create a new fantasy, a new world where our continued participation in this matters. And that is the move towards deciding that the, uh, the discourse is politics, that the Bernie campaign was defeated by messaging problems, by some sort of internal enemy within the left, and that it had to be uh, rooted out. And that means that you can participate in that and feel like you're being constructive because, hey, if the left is going to do anything, it has to get these bad guys out of it, right? They're fucking it up. But there is no left. It's a, it's a, it is a uh, empty shell. A new left has to be built. And it will out of real, not just alienation. Alienation felt through a communal lens. Alienation that is experienced by a group of people together who come to an understanding of how to assert their collective best interest. Defined democratically. Because they're going to have to. They're going to have to do it to survive. Or at least to maintain hope, which is basically the same thing.
Like we got a new left already in the sixties. That was the post. That was the first iteration of post-class politics. And it's been that way ever since. This is just the decayed corpse of that new left. So it's got to be a new, new left, I guess. But that makes sense. Cycles of rebirth, for God's sakes. One model is extinguished. Another emerges out of its ashes as the machinery of consent break down, as alienation intensifies. Yeah, there was an attempt in the 90s to do that. That was the Labor Party. There was a a bunch of uh, union people got together to try to create an American Labor Party because they looked around and said, oh, no, oops, no Labor Party. And it was a credible attempt, but the third party structure is just, it has to emerge. The only way a third party can challenge from without the structure is if it emerges out of a group of people who are organized orthogonally to the current partisan breakdown. Like what happened with the Whigs before the Civil War is that you had this issue of anti-slavery, which was one part of a bunch of, like people define their politics around a bunch of different issues. Slavery was one of them. Everybody had some sort of opinion on slavery, but it was not for most of the early Republic determining of their politics because there was this project of, Securing the constitutional order, defending our uh, building political power, the fight for democratic representation that, were, that emerged in Jacksonianism. It created these two political parties, uh, the Whigs and the Democrats, that were both organized around avoiding the question of slavery because the slavery was the one unnegotiable element. Everything else could be put on the table. And as long as everything else could be put on the table, there could be an illusion that there was a actual, uh, you know, democratic deliberation. What is really going on is that one part of the economy, the thing that you would deliberate over and the people who would be part of your, you know, uh, social order are removed from the equation. And both parties, it was in their interest to keep it that way. And they were trying in the lead up to the Civil War to keep it that way. But because the Whig Party was made up of generally more middle class people who were more committed to abolitionism than working class people tended to be, it applied a significant pressure on the Whigs over time to accommodate anti-slavery. But it couldn't. It couldn't. There were too many stakeholders within the Whig Party, like the, the, the conscience grays around Millard Fillmore, for example, who were committed to keeping power within a Whig Party that was, by definition, part of this transactional relationship with the Democrats to hide slavery from public deliberation. And so it required a new party structure, a new party that appeals to this new, this issue that is now the dominant issue for, uh, working for, uh, for the Whig base in the North. And that accommodates also, though, and this is the important part, 
also accommodates anti-slavery people from the Democratic Party. Anti-slavery Democrats were a key constituency of the Republican Party, and that meant anti uh, that meant anti-slavery workers. It meant anti-slavery uh, yeomen who saw uh, the capitalism that the Whigs represented as a threat to them, and were rightfully alienated from that party party structure. And so the Republicans, by not kowtowing, by but to either one of the sectional uh, or class interests uh, of the different uh, party bases, made an overall appeal on the issue of slavery, and that broke off a, a significant chunk of of Democrats, workers, and small farmers, who over time became more anti-slavery. And we're now represented in this party that was dominated, though, by ex-Whigs. And so it was this coalition that just smashed the Whig party into pieces and then eventually also broke up the Democrats. Now, the issue of that time was slavery. It was well understood at the time by Marx, by Frederick Douglass, by Wendell Phillips, by Thaddeus Stevens and others, and certainly by the fucking uh, former slaves themselves that the end of slavery is just the first uh, stage in a continual, you might even say permanent revolutionary move towards full human liberation, which means, of course, full human cooperative access to the world. The condition of communism, the condition of a communist society. And uh, I, you, I, one time I, I quoted a Deb speech about John Brown, where he said John Brown, you know, was the uh, avenging a, a, uh, angel of, of slavery. Who will be the John Brown of wage slavery? Uh, and you know that ended up not happening for a million reasons. Some of them overdetermined by America's uh, social and economic structures and geographic. Uh, uh, geographic extent, but also contingent things like the death of Lincoln, honestly, the ascension of Johnson. Instead, we got the codification of wage slavery as, as a stable concept. And yeah, someone says here, uh, John Brown of wage slavery is a guy going postal. That's exactly it. The John Brown of wage slavery is uh, Paddock. The John Brown of, of wage slavery, the John Brown of modern capitalist alienation, yeah, is, is Stephen Paddock. Because all it can be is just antisocial nihilism. Like to feel that far from God, forced to live under capitalism, and try to resist it with like your violence, like with your full will, there's nothing to do but just kill people because you don't have a situation like the Anabalum America, where you had these two massive political machines coming towards one another, this this growing political irreconcilia, uh, uh, irreconciliation. The book Cloud Splitter has a great bit about John Brown 
before Lawrence, but before Osawatomie Creek, imagining the 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 uh, anti-slavery forces in Kansas retreating and then the North seceding from the South, which was a live idea in the minds of a lot of abolitionists. They were terrified of that happening because the South had had to try to the North had already tried to secede once with the Hartford Convention during the War of eighteen twelve. Just do it again. Take your industrial economy and go home. And the South would let them, idiotically, but the South would let them. So Brown insisted on like bringing, it, bringing the conflict to its necessary conclusion, to break open the, the, the fog, the miasma. But now there is only fog and miasma. There is nothing. Violence is just another... Uh, devalued currency. Like it has no impact. It just washes over us because our actions, our individual actions have less impact because there's fewer of us, honestly, boiled down to it. There's fewer of us with access to more refined technology. That just means that different tactics are necessary. Collective tactics. Things that with every act build solidarity, build cooperation, and give people more reason to cooperate. It is, I'm just saying that if, you are, if your mind is, is sharpened towards a violent confrontation with the system, that means one thing in 1855. It means another thing now. Because the, the God that John Brown felt in his heart is dead. But that doesn't mean that that feeling we have of, of repulsion and alienation from the world that cry of a God for a God isn't there. It just gets filtered through a prism of increasingly demented pleasure-seeking until it can no longer be sustained and violent expression is the only result because by that point, you're not feeling the pain of the human race the way Brown did. You're feeling only your own pain. And if you're an American who goes on a shooting spree like Paddock, assuming he was what they say he was, and I think he's more interesting that way as a literary figure anyway. And if you don't like Paddock, there's guys like similar enough. If you have deep, if you're feeling the biosphere crack under your feet, you can feel everything tearing. And it causes you pain. It, it breaks you from harmony. 
If you're John Brown, you can connect that to God. You can connect God to man. Then you can identify this monstrous evil. You can follow a chain of reasoning that connects your pain to this monstrosity. And then you can fix yourself towards ending it and then find meaning in that and find a reason to live in that. Find succor in that. Now, that feeling can only be directed towards the self. I feel bad. It is an internal investigation. It is a descent down a spiral staircase of self, of self. And it's not anyone's fault or choice. It is a wiring. But it is not a wiring that determines all of our actions. That's the thing, because at every moment we are interacting with the rest of the world. We're pinballing against other people, other minds, other ideas, other symbols. And then we are having emotional, sensuous experiences with them of different kinds. And they are fusing new meaning, forging new reality out of our experience that changes the way we think about things. More importantly, the way we act on the way we think. And the sum of social progress is the sum of uh, structures being created that facilitate that human cooperative feeling. And so we're all charged with the existential question of what is to be done. But now what is to be done to make the revolution like Lenin thought? What is to be done to live? Because Lenin did what was to be done to get his revolution, and he got it. He was this arcing meteor of intent and, and will and concentration. He understood the moment better than anybody. It's, it's, it's astounding. But he was motivated through that whole thing by a deeper belief in a world revolution that he would be part of. And I really kind of do think that when it didn't happen, his head exploded. Like. He was driven to be part of this, this, moment, this thing, and as soon as it stopped being a possibility and as soon as the reality of, of doing the dirty work of capitalism to create modern subjects out of the peasant masses of Russia at the point of a fucking gun, to take onto communism's shoulders that which the capitalists left to the, the, mists, the mystified notions of market that was going to do the permanent damage to the project of socialism just in, in the narrow short-term uh, self-interest of those who are going to be in charge of the government. He couldn't do it. They all fled from the challenge one way or the other. Trotsky fled intellectually into a fantasy land of world revolution. 
Lenin l- fled his body. Uh, and Bukharin was the realist. Bukharin was the one most grounded to reality, not just to the reality of the defeat of the world revolution and what that meant, but grounded in the reality of the, uh, the necessity of, rec- of allowing capitalism to do this work. Because the whole premise of Leninist seizure of power that becomes like the working praxis of, for how to, how to con- carry out Marxism. Because, hey, look what they tried in Germany and it didn't work, you know. That is all uh, predicated on the project of creating this Bolshevik state, right? And then having that Bolshevik state collectivize the country. First the world, but then when the world is no longer possible, the country. And what that means is, in reality, like stripped of, stripped of um, any kind of descriptive language, the sheer... the, the, the mm, All that a communist society is, whether it's one where people are suffering a great deal and has a lot of privation uh, and has like a lower standard of living or one with a very high standard of living, the, the dip, they're both communist to the degree that the people in those countries are not alienated from the project, from the state project that they're part of. And the way that that is built, the way that that is forged is people have positive relationships with the the party, the project of creating democratic collaborative control of the economy. And in the Marxist teleology, this is not, this is not a question of uh, coercing people and killing people and, and, sar- and starving people and, and rounding people up because if you have advanced enough developed capitalism if the workers take control democratically of those institutions they will immediately be able to go about using their democratic control of the, the uh, means of production to take all of that hoarded wealth that the rich people had and distribute it down Make people's lives better. Give a whole generation of people a connection in their mind between communism and better standard of living, less fear, less pain, more more happiness in life. And then their kids grow up having only experienced that because once the system is created, once you have this worker control of an advanced capitalism, it has to be advanced, you are only improving people's conditions to a point. Now, of course, we're not talking about everybody getting consumer republic, everybody getting to buy whatever they want. It's people being able to live their lives free of compulsion, free of misery, able to pursue their own ends. 
by taking up the job of capitalism that's, as Stalin did to defend the revolution, he guaranteed that an entire generation of people will associate this regime only with misery. And that's not Stalin's fault. That's what the project is at that point. You are in the same position vis-a-vis the, the, the capitalist states of Europe that the medieval states of early modernity were with each other. Everybody else, everybody is competing to defend themselves from potential outside attack. They were waiting to carve up the Soviet Union. It had to be defended. And, it was, and they defended it the same way that the capitalist class helped the ruling class defend those states in Europe by extracting the shit, by abstracting the shit out of the peasantry. Now in Europe, though, this process occurs mysteriously. It's a, it's a, it's a process of creating a market system that abstracts away from individuals any responsibility to one another, but is not the imposition of the state. So even as the miseration makes life worth for, worse for European peasantry, um, they experience this not as uh, only partially as a disillusionment with the state, but really, eventually, over time, after they're repressed in peasants' revolts and stuff, uh, as, as as the work first of, like, rich guys, but eventually just, it gets abstracted. I mean, the Jews take a lot of the image, is, is a lot of the damage here is the thing, is that that venting of, like, anxiety and misery and alienation from a system that is, like, pulling you away from your self-sustainance of the land, you got to blame somebody, and they end up blaming the Jews. They blamed the shit out of the Jews. The USSR couldn't do that. They couldn't put it on the Jews. They, they, the state, took it upon themselves, which is why they committed mass murder-suicide during the, the Great Purges. The party had to do that. They all felt too guilty. Because they weren't supposed to be doing that. That was supposed to be done by the abstracted hand of capital. With blame being vented off into the ether. Until it is captured by a working class movement in the advanced nations of the world. That are able to seize the advanced uh, advanced capitalism. Turn it towards humane development. And then take people who at that point are still connected to the land and gradually, advantageously remove them from it. So that they associate being taken of the land, not, uh, they associate being turned into like a modern subject and their children being turned into modern subjects, not as a violation of their sovereignty and individuality and rights and es- essences, but as part of the things that give them the ability to express that essence.
And so I think that Bukharin had the right of it in the debate over what to do with the NEP after the death of Lenin. I think that the Bolshevik seizure of power was the right thing to do in the historic moment when it needed to happen, but other things failed to happen. And that meant that Russia was going to have to be developed capitalistically. Now, see, people say, do they beat Hitler if this happens? But it, I don't know if you have Hitler without uh, the massive explosion of the power of the Soviet Union. I know that that was a cause of a, a big controversy in Germany, the history wars, but that was all in this like stupid garb of, of blame. The Soviets were going to try to create their own country. It was going to happen. Bukharin was right, but he also lost because that's not where the party was. He just had a, he was like, oh boy, you know, we should have done that. It's like, good, good on you for trying, but he got owned because by that point, the, the battle to win the war had created a coherent thing in the Bolshevik party. It had its own self-conception. It had its own a definition of the revolution that made its own role central. So it wasn't going to do what Bukharin wanted it to do. So the Western countries embracing Hitler, that's not being scared of the mean Soviets. Uh, that's just trying to save their own asses. In a situation where the Soviets buy them off, Perhaps the Western European uh, socialism, uh, communism goes better. Maybe you don't have a split after the uh, First World War. I don't know. I think it's not really to tell anybody what should have happened as just to say, we got one world and then there's another world, you know, there's a world where we didn't get Andrew Johnson. And then there's a world where I think there's a world where Bukharin, the Bukharin uh, path is taken uh, and a world war happens again, but the other array of forces create an actual durable working class resistance to capitalism that uh, intercedes in some way. I don't know. Or maybe not. Shit. Never mind. You know what? If you got Bukharin, actually, never mind. If you got Bukharin, what you probably end up happening is instead of, uh, yeah, you probably have a second world war that ends with like a nuclear annihilation or something. Capitalism was going to explode in the mid-20th century, no matter what. Capitalism was going to blow up. And maybe, yeah, it's best that there was something there that wasn't that to prevent it from fully immolating.
I don't know. It's very tempting to just want to want to go back and fix something, but you can't. And that's the challenge of living in the uh, aftermath of history. Because we are still all historical subjects. We have historical agency, but it is it is baffled by so many layers of virtual identity that, I don't know, maybe the Matrix movie will fix it. Maybe we'll watch the Matrix and realize finally that, yes, it doesn't matter if the Matrix is real because you are in the Matrix no matter what, because you you act like it's real. There is no spoon, baby. There is no spoon. And that's what's so frustrating because everything is fully determined and this, this structured. It feels like this eternal black iron prison, but we are all capable of just walking through the goddamn wall at any time. Now, we can't, but we are capable of it. We can't because we know it would be a bad idea, basically, if we all tried to do that. But it means that if we could dial into the same frequency, we could move in a direction that I really don't think the system is capable of anticipating right now because of how committed it is to uh, how, how much it rests on the assumption of our inactivity, I guess I would say. Like it, is, it assumes a degree of compliance that I don't think is going to be sustainable in the medium term. And that's going to go everywhere. It's going to be messy, but every moment is going to be an opportunity. And there's no way of knowing what it's going to be because it hasn't happened. We don't know which world we're in. We know which world we've been in, but we don't know which world we're in right now because it's going to look different from a different point in the future. So, yeah, I guess that's all you can do. Very unsatisfying, but I try to keep it as unsatisfying as possible or else it's too, it's too much of a indulgence. Just do it all day. But everybody's got to feel somewhat unsatisfied. And you can also smoke weed every day. That's another option. And you know what? The two are not mutually exclusive. All right, folks, I'm done. <laughs>